listeners of the Mad Scientist podcast, I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, here with another in our series of interviews of interesting people involved in uh, either deep into the UFO community or slightly on the fringes of it, maybe looking into the inside of that community from a more journalistic standpoint. And today we are joined by uh, Sarah Scholes. Uh, Sarah is a science journalist. Um, she has written for all kinds of different places, uh, Wired Science, Popular Science. She wrote the book Making Contact, Jill Tarter, and the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Um, and is just, I think, overall a fascinating person to talk about this stuff with. Sarah, how are you doing this morning? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? Doing doing pretty well. You know, just uh, trying to make sense of the Bob Lazar documentary or the, the not the documentary, but the autobiography now coming out. Yeah. Aren't aren't we all? Uh, I haven't. Oh. Yeah. I haven't perused its pages yet, but I'm um, looking forward to. Yeah. From what um, from what people have told me already, kind of people that, you know, as soon as it came out, bought it and listened all the way through, um, which I think is just a Herculean task on its own. They, uh, you know, it's basically the same story. You know what I mean? It's what it's what you expect Bob Lazar to say, which if there's one thing about Bob Lazar, he has been consistent about his story. Um, But, you know, so so is George Lucas doesn't make the story true. Right. (laughs) Anyways. Right. Yeah. um, It's it's convenient to have a pretty unfalsifiable story and to just be able to tell it over and over. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, I actually think back. I have when I was a kid. I somehow, and maybe this was, I don't know, maybe this was like the defining moment where I chose good over evil, but I'll never forget. I convinced a friend that I was a power ranger. Like I was actually a power ranger. (laughs) I don't think I actually convinced him of course, but I was like, you know, I was like, no, no, I'm a power ranger. And like for a day I was like, no, no, I could call my Zord like anytime. Like it's going to happen. You know, I'm the, I'm the beige one, the beige power ranger. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and then at the end of the day, I was like, I feel bad. And I was like, I'm not I'm not really a Power Ranger. And, you know, the day just kind of ended and we stayed friends and we never had. I'm sure he gets drunk at parties and is like, I had an idiot friend try to convince me he was a Power Ranger. <laughs> but you, I mean, anyways. you could still be working that story if you wanted. You could write a book, too. Really? I could honestly. Uh, yeah. You know, you heard it here first, folks. Chris Cogswell, secret government Power Ranger, chrononaut, time traveler. It's all great. Anyways. So, Sarah, give us a little bit of your background. How did you get interested in this subject? Well, uh, I think probably at the same time as a lot of other people, when I got a news alert on my phone from the New York Times telling me that the Defense Department had a UFO program, um, I saw that. And uh, my first reaction was, well, you know, of of course they do. Uh, who would be more interested in some kind of incursion into airspace than the Defense Department? It would be kind of dumb for them not to be investigating uh, unidentified flying objects, not necessarily connected to anything extraterrestrial, but like they have a vested interest in identifying things in the sky of any sort. Uh, So at first I didn't pay much attention. um, And then when I got home the afternoon, the story came out, I read it in detail and I just thought this is an insane story. If there's a lot to back it up, Um, they say they have, metal from perhaps some crashed ufos they say that this is science fiction Uh, i think the words were uh this is like if leonardo da vinci got a garage door opener um and uh and i mean what if he did and then uh i had an editor at at wired uh who sent me just a a fairly obscure blog post about this story's connections to Tom DeLonge and this company to the Stars Academy. And she said, you know, do you want to look into all of this? And so I just uh, started to. And as as you well know, it's a hole you can go down kind of forever. Um, and so I've been going down it for the past uh, year and a half or so. And uh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's so – I think it's really fascinating the – it's at the outset that New York Times story was really like a lot of the things with To the Stars Academy. It seemed really important and it seemed like a big deal. Like this had never happened before. But then if you've been involved or, or kind of know the history of this subject, right, you can go back in history and see other times where the government has come out and said, no, we're looking at UFOs. We've been looking at them, you know, and it's kind of funny having 
you know, if you go to any of these kind of meetings, like a MUFON meeting or a symposium or whatever, it's really funny going to these meetings and having, you know, having, um, I don't know, having these older people who have been involved in the field for so long kind of patting you on the shoulder and being like, Haha, yeah, I can't wait for it to fall out of crap for you guys too. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, like I can't, yeah. I can't wait for it to come out that it was all a big hoax and they were tricking <laughs> right. you all because there's nothing here. They're just trying to protect, you know, their technology or whatever. So I guess for you, what is the most compelling part of this story? Or what, what is the part that really – what do you think, I guess, to, on the outset, what were you most surprised to find out about this story to begin with? Uh, I think after I started digging in, you know, my, my job is putting together articles myself. And so when I read other people's articles, I start to think about the way they put them together. Like how did this idea come to them? What evidence do they have to back it up? Um, how many times do they say allegedly or reportedly because they don't have direct evidence themselves necessarily? And I think what was most interesting to me as I started to think more deeply about the story was like how little was actually there, kind of like you, kind of like you said. And um, so then I, I, but what what compelled me about the story, and I've been working about, on a book. Um, since last year about UFO culture and kind of this cycle in history of people getting fooled by things maybe and the the government protecting their own interests and perhaps muddying the waters um, is uh, I met a lot of people when I was working on my first article, uh, researchers in the UFO field who I really identified with in a way I didn't necessarily expect. Like there's this group of people who do remember the UFO field's history and who uh you know, get a lot of government documents and do a lot of investigations, like not unlike a journalist would do. And what I found most compelling about the story was how they were handling it and how they did not seem to be fooled. And then also how they came into conflict, as I'm sure we've all seen, uh, especially on Twitter, with the people who did believe this new story. Yeah, it's for me. So the the way that I kind of first got, I mean, I, I've always been interested in this story from the time I was a kid. Just because, like, I grew up, my mom is like a spooky lady, I guess you would say, <laughs> generally. Although getting less spooky with age, she's kind of, you know, mellowing out. But, you know, um, I've always been interested in this kind of stuff. And so when I got into university, I really, I, I initially thought I wanted to do kind of like theoretical physics work. And then found out that theoretical <laughs> physicists don't make any money. So I decided to become an engineer with a philosophy degree. So, yeah, so that, that's been a very lucrative choice in my life. That was a good one. Um, but, you know, in through philosophy, though, the, I, the, the why do people believe weird things? But also why do people, like you said, why is it that these fields are cyclical? And one of the big things in my mind is that it's a lack of institutional knowledge or even just a lack of institutions meant to keep that knowledge. I don't know how deeply you've gone into, say, uh, you know, I don't know, kind of the Facebook groups and things and all the clicks and everything else. But I mean, it's a pretty it's a pretty drastic split um, where the vast majority of the UFO community, if we can call it a community, right, the people that are interested in this don't really seem to be buying what To The Stars Academy is selling. But there's a very small subset that is you know, maybe like 10 percent, 15 percent who have just been introduced to the field and do believe it. And then there's like another maybe 5% of that where they're like, oh, finally, they're, you know, finally the government admits that they've had flying craft this whole time that are floating and, you know, the, it, it plays into their overall mythology. Yeah, and it's, it's been interesting for me since I, I mean, I didn't really, to be honest, pay attention to ufology or the UFO community for whatever it is, like you said, until this story came out, I was like a lot of the newcomers, but it has been interesting to see just how rabid that five or 10% who just kind of came on the scene at the same time as to the stars can be. Um, and when I, when I started writing about it, when I wrote uh, the first story for Wired, where I kind of called into question the provenance of the videos and the actual evidence behind the original story, like um, my uh, Twitter mentions just blew up and some people started making hate videos about me. And, you know, I write a ton of articles and it has never happened to me before. And now anytime I mention to the stars or UFOs, it's just like a constant attack from this group of people who who are the minority, but do 
really love to the Stars Academy in a way I don't quite understand. Yeah, they're super vocal about it. It's um, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to understand where that kind of it's hard to understand. And that's something that we've been trying to do is pick apart and understand where that level of devotion comes from, because it really has never. It's it's never really I mean, okay. I say it's never been, but there have been UFO cults, like literal cults, right, where people kill themselves. Uh, You know, so to some extent, it's almost like a continuation of just the radicalization of young men that we see generally in society right now, in my mind. But it's also, I think, a really interesting subset of the community. It it almost to me, you know, it's it, it almost feels to me like a street team. You know, like a band street team, like the people that they they get involved or they feel like they're involved. They feel like they're connected. And frankly, part of that is because of how like some of the members of To The Stars Academy are super open. You know, Lou Elizondo, evidently, if you go up to him at conferences, he just gives out his cell phone number. People just get to text Lou Elizondo and be like, hey, what's up? Nice episode of Unidentified. Yeah, that to me is crazy. I don't get to text him. (laughs) No, I don't. No, no, no. They they will not talk, especially after this series. They will not talk to me. Um, no, I would. I no, 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 no. They don't. When I was at so when I was at MUFON actually um, before that whole fiasco blew up, we were in contact with To the Stars Academy, trying to like, you know, legitimately talk to them. Like, hey, you guys have materials you want to be you want to see analyzed. I happen to be a PhD in you know focusing on the creation and analysis of nanomaterials. Let's get some of your stuff to a lab. And it just never happened. It just never were interested, you know, Um, which was the first the first um, the first ringer that something was a little bit off there. Right. Like, why don't they want this? Yeah. I mean, the the same thing happened to me. Lou Elizondo and uh, Steve Justice were both talking to me when I first started reporting on this topic. And then I talked to the Pentagon and got some contradictory reports about where the, the UAP videos had come from and what they represented. And I said, hey, Lou Elizondo, you know, what do you think of this? And when it became clear that my narrative was not going to exactly match up with their narrative, they stopped returning my calls mysteriously. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's interesting how that has happened. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've, like, on the air, I have called... I don't know. I have been brutal to the to the leaders of MUFON on this show and on other shows. And yet when I see those leaders at conferences, we give each other a hug and we talk and you know what I mean? Like we disagree, but I've never (laughs) been ghosted in the same way. It's hurtful. Which (laughs) it's kind of, again, on its own. Interesting. Oh, my God. I'm crying right now. I'm crying internally. Um I'll go play some later ages Blink-182 and cry to myself. Man, I have never listened to more Blink-182 than I have since last <sighs> December. It really it really got a, a renaissance going for me, for better or for worse. Yeah, it's, good, it's good stuff, right? It's um, My wife will now, when I'm, getting too, when I'm getting too clearly agitated by UFO Twitter, my wife will text me just, uh, why are you? <laughs> right? Like from my, why are you? Like she just comes for me, man. But anyways... Um, so in, one thing that I think is really interesting with all of this too, is the, the response of the scientific community to all of this has been, there's this mythology in the UFO world that scientists don't want to get involved in this because it'll hurt their careers and things. And yet in my experience, at least, and I, I don't know if you've had the same experience, but in my experience, Scientists are the biggest, you know, kind of sci-fi fans out there. And so maybe they don't want to get involved in like ufology, you know, but I don't, I I have never, I have not yet met a scientist who, you know, at a conference, at a work event, um, just from being friends or whatever, where when I tell them, hey, I've been reading these funny books about UFOs, they're not genuine, you know, just generally interested in the subject or topic. I've never had someone be like, all oh, that's bull crap. I don't believe in it. Yeah, no, neither have I. I was actually pretty uh, reticent to, to tell 
people I interview for other stories, because most of what I write about is, you know, astronomical discoveries or space companies or or slightly more grounded things like that. And I was nervous to tell people like I'm working on this UFO book, but I've had like a, a uniformly positive response. Like that sounds interesting. And we also, I mean, you also have scientists like the chair of the astronomy department at Harvard University who suggested that that uh, interstellar object that came through the solar system, I don't know if you remember that, uh, was yep. maybe a, a spaceship. And, you know, he caught, he caught some heat for that, but at the same time, he's the chair of the astronomy department at Harvard. And there was a... There's also a scientist at NASA Ames Research Center, I think, who published a paper suggesting that we should pay more attention to the idea that there might be spacecraft in the solar system or in the atmosphere. And I think I think scientists' biggest problem is that, you know, they like data and reports and evidence. And um, historically, when UFO researchers have tried to gather that, they either haven't or in the case of people like Bigelow, which I'm sure you're going to talk about a lot, like he does a lot of research and then we never see the results of what comes out of it. And that's what convinces scientists. Yeah. It goes into a file folder someplace in the desert (laughs) (laughs) in Las Vegas, you know, surrounding Las Vegas. Yeah. We got to go on a treasure hunt someday. I'm telling you, seriously, it's no, it is. It is really interesting. And that's actually one area where we've interviewed in the past psychologists and, you know, uh, people doing, I, you know, what I hesitate to call the soft sciences, but, you know, things like, say, psychology or sociology, anthropology, these kinds of fields where, you know, the I don't think there has ever been a more a better time in the the Western historical overall conversation to talk about why it is that people believe things that seem to have no evidence for them. <laughs> There's never been a better time. It's, yeah, it is, I mean, it's not it just, ruining. It's things. not just UFOs anymore. No, it's <laughs> it's not right. Like measles is coming back. It's crazy, mm-hmm. and you know it. And it's just been so funny. You know, my my mom again. My mom. My mom the other day was like, "Well, it's it's." She texted me after I posted a thing about some crazy UFO thing, and she was like, "Do people really believe that?" And I was like, "Yes." Yes, they do. People really believe that and they buy the books and they watch the doc, you know, they watch the documentaries and they they go to the events. People really believe this stuff. And it's in many cases the same people who believe that vaccines are dangerous or you know, it's not like that slippery slope that exists is not hard to see its foundations in the UFO field. And so there is a lot I think of interesting historical knowledge and just general kind of knowledge about how to combat some of that that can be gained from this field. Yeah. And I think for me, what kind of clarified a lot of people's reactions was I, I read an essay by a guy named Chris Witkowski. I don't know if you've ever talked to him. Yes. Yeah. Chris is great. He, big, big friend of a uh, big friend of the show's hosts here. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. I read an essay that he wrote for uh, the book Reframing the debate that kind of looked at ufology as a modern religion, not just as like, like a religion, but truly a religion. And just the way that people interact with evidence and claims and things like that is, is more like that. It's based on feeling and it is based on belief. It's not based on anything to back it up. And no matter how much evidence or lack of evidence you throw at someone, like they're not going to change their mind because it's not based in what it claims to be based in which is like yeah. science. So no, absolutely. And well, and so I don't know how much you've, I don't know how much you've been able to really look at say the science portion of things ab- about this field. But, you know, for instance, we, I, I completely agree with, with Chris's analysis of it being almost, you know, it being a new religion that, and, and it has all the hallmarks, you know, even the collection of evidence process is nearly a, ritualistic behavior because again there's not a lot of uh it's not there there is not a lot of verifiable science that can come from those investigations and even if you go to say like a MUFON meeting it is very much so it's it's closer to almost a like an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting (laughs) yeah where you know and I say I say that with all with all seriousness it it really is like that because it's people that get together they in many cases may not have other places to go um, in terms of, you know, on, on a Saturday or whatever. And they'll go, they have a community of people who think like them, 
who have had similar frightening experiences maybe that they can't explain. And it's, it is almost more of a thing about, you know, I don't know how much of it is about investigation as it is about healing in terms of their experiences. But, but anyways, that, you know, getting, getting to the point of the scientific question here, right? Have you ever, have you had a chance yet to look at some of the statistical data that exists currently, or have have you really not been able to look at that yet? Uh, In terms of sightings and things? Yes. Uh, I have looked at other people's analysis of that. I listened to some of yours, and uh, I've looked at some of Cheryl Costa's analysis. Yes. Things like that. And I think both of you have found that a lot of the claims about where things tend to show up and what they're up to are, like, don't don't stand up. Like, I think she or maybe you, uh, the claim, the claim that they like, show up near <laughs> nuclear facilities is not true. Uh, yes. Things like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's something, I guess one thing that I have found to be very interesting with this is, or w- the reason I bring this up is if you had to come up with a survey or if you, if you had to study this scientifically, where would you start? Hmm. That's a good question. I, uh, I think, and maybe this is my own personal bias because I write a lot about the satellite industry, but there are satellites watching pretty much all of Earth all of the time right now. And those and, you know, organizations like NORAD, but NORAD's a little more closed and these are just private companies that have no restrictions on their data. Like you could, you could get that data. You could go buy it. You could get a subscription to something that, uh, yeah, takes pictures of the whole planet every day. And if there's something as kind of ubiquitous as ufology kind of implies going on, you know, you should be able to see something like that. Or, I mean, for, for claims like to the stars is making, like you said about the the metamaterials or whatever, the samples they have, like it's not a mystery how you would figure out if those were mysterious or not. Like we have the technology, we can we can figure these things out. And if there's radar data for those sightings, like, let's get it. Um, I personally am never going to be convinced by anyone's account, uh, personal account, I don't think, not even my own if I had one, just because humans are so fallible and our brains are so bad at interpreting things, I think I would start with that kind of hard data. Yeah, I I agree with you there. It's one part of this that I I find to be really fascinating, actually, is talking to to people who – maybe have never had an experience like this, but who still believe I often just kind of want to ask them, like, have you, have you never misremembered something? You know, like you've never, you've never, uh, you've never had even, I, I saw it today on Reddit, uh, the, or not on Reddit, actually on the hysteria 51 Facebook page. Um, the fruit of the loom logo doesn't have a cornucopia on it. And my, my brain literally was like <laughs> melting. I was like, what do you mean it doesn't have a cornucopia? Of course it does. And no, it's right. never had it, right? Um, or the or the Berenstein Bears versus the Bernstein Bears. Those kinds of things happen all the time to us. And they happen as, on a social level too, not even like an individual level. So how could you possibly think that, you know, you couldn't just be mistaken about something? Um, it's hard yeah. to. I mean, yeah, you can have gauge. two eyewitnesses to a crime standing next to each other, report different things. You can tell someone they had a memory of something when they were a kid and then they will make up a memory that kind of matches that. Like there's research that shows this. It's not like calling any eyewitness a liar. Like our brains are just bad at memory. Our Yeah. Our brains are bad at memory. That is an accurate statement. A hundred percent. Getting So getting back to, I guess, kind of more of the to the stars Academy discussion here, the questions, one of the most fascinating things for me has been how successfully Robert Bigelow. And again, he's not, we don't know for certain that he's involved in To the Stars Academy. It's just like, you know, I don't know if I made the example the other night on our radio show that, you know, it's, it's like if, um, if Robin showed up at a crime scene to investigate, it would make sense to think that Batman will probably get involved or had something to do with it. It's kind of that way with Pudoff and Bigelow. Like if Pudoff's there, Bigelow is probably somewhere in the shadows, um, you know, scowling, so, um, so Bigelow's ability to actually have, have transitioned this from an interest in space generally, maybe, I mean, he had an experience or his family had an experience when he was a kid that led to him being interested in UFOs. He grew up in an area that was ripe with, with UFO sightings and things during the time period. 
actually, you know, he he did it right. Like he built himself up and is, you know, has modules going into space currently. Um, that's an amazing story to me. And it's one that I, I'm surprised that more of, I guess, the scientific media hasn't looked at or even looked into. Um, why do you think that is? Uh, why do I think they haven't looked into it? Yeah, I guess. Or, you know, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I think something Robert Bigelow has always had going for him is that he did make himself into a very successful businessman, first with his hotels and then with these very real space modules, you know, that have gone to the space station. And he's like, he's a, he's a major player in the like NASA economic ecosystem. And I think that gives him a lot of credibility that other people might have. Like if you're an eccentric billionaire, you can have eccentric interests and people still take you seriously. Like NASA will still give you contracts. And I, you know, I, I don't exactly know why the media hasn't paid attention to him, but my, my cynical answer is that all of the coverage of ATIP into the stars Academy um, has kind of been driven by to the stars Academy putting forth stories and if they don't put forth the narrative about robert bigelow then it's easier for whoever's writing the story just not to go investigate that like to take what's given to them like journalists are busy Mm. and i think maybe it's easier just to take that story there is i i don't have the link in front of me but the first time i wrote a story about robert bigelow it was just about his his inflatable module that was going to the space station and my editor said you should you should read this story that wired published this profile of robert bigelow a long time ago um maybe like in the early mid 2000s that did kind of look at this this history of his interest but that was um you know they hadn't done it since then so Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, no, that's that's actually one of our um, that is one of our sources for our series on Bigelow. So it'll be in the show notes, folks. But um, I mean, honestly, I think it's I, I actually think partly it's because, like you said, uh, big. So Bigelow has had a really good or really Bigelow is really effective at keeping, frankly, keeping his secrets because he doesn't do social media. You know, a lot of these a lot of these UFO personalities, like even say like Richard Doty has a Facebook profile, (laughs) you know, you can like, you can, you can message Richard Doty on, on Facebook. You can tweet at George Knapp and he'll retweet you. A lot of these personalities um, are very open and it's because it's part of their business model. They need to be open because they need to be visible because if they're not visible, then people will just forget about them. Bigelow is part of a crowd that's been very good at keeping things close to the chest and that's actually kind of played into his mythos, I think, as this kind of mysterious, brooding, uh, you know, evil genius or, or maybe not evil genius, but just genius. Yeah. And I mean, maybe it helps that he is not trying to make his money for the most part on UFOs. Well, that, like he doesn't yeah. need that. He made his money already. I think that absolutely helps, too. And he even says that in some of his interviews that he gave earlier on in his life. He talks about how he only his plan. He says that his plan all along was to start funding this stuff once he had enough money that people had to take him seriously. And it's honestly worked amazingly well. It's like it worked like a charm. You know, this guy started from a couple of housing units in Las Vegas and has built it into a has built it into a a community that that does, like you said, have to take him seriously just by the sheer weight of his ability to throw around money. Um, He's like the $10 billion elephant in the room. (laughs) And then I think, you know, when he, although he keeps a lot of his research funding quiet, something uh, Jack Brewer of the UFO trail said to me when I was interviewing him is like, when this serious business person, Robert Bigelow, takes a shine to you and funds you to do some kind of UFO or paranormal research, like you get a little bit of that validity like bestowed onto you. So it's kind of like an honor to have Robert Bigelow be funding your research. And I think that keeps people probably from asking maybe more questions than they should. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's also interesting, though, looking at the history of the things that he's funded and how many of them have kind of – a lot of it, too, because it is the UFO community and because this is almost a field where it's almost like trying to study folklore – it's like word of mouth is really important because people just didn't, you know, in the 1990s, people didn't think to write this stuff down for some reason. <laughs> but so, you know, like fr- trying to figure out what the Bigelow Foundation actually funded, it has been a real challenge for us. And the only ways that we've been able to pick apart some of the things that the Bigelow Foundation funded, besides like looking at, you know, tax documents and whatever for for it, is looking at people's self-published biographies on like <laughs> exopolitics.org or, you know, um, those kinds of things. And then seeing it corroborated or at least not pulled down by Bigelow. Um, it's, it's a really, it's a really fascinating thing. I mean, he's been involved in some things that people don't even realize, you know, he was uh, one of the initial founders of Art Bell's coast to coast radio show. Mm-hmm. You know, he helped fund that he or at least helped fund the initial version of it with with George Knapp and Linda Moulton Howe. He helped fund um, some of Stanton Friedman's research. He had a contract with Bob Lazar for a time period before Lazar tried to give him like pine saw and say it was element 115. Um, You know, there like there's a lot of stories like that out there that he funded people and then realized that he was funded. You know, he was throwing money. um, He was just throwing bad money. You know, he was bad money after good, so it didn't make sense to continue funding it. But that's actually been one of the most fascinating parts of this for for me, at least, is, yes, Bigelow giving you money is a big uh, vote of confidence, I would say. But for some reason, Bigelow then taking away money isn't considered a vote of no confidence. (laughs) Yeah, trying to make sense of that. And I mean, I think what's a shame shame about it, I think, is that based on all of this and the long lists I've seen that it sounds like you've seen also of the people he's funded, even if we don't know all the projects, like he must have the largest private collection of data on all of this stuff as anyone. And if if ufology wants to be treated like science, like I said before, then you have to, you know, you release results, you publish reports, you make them public and you let people try to reproduce them. And I think it's a shame that there's all this data, even if it's data that came to nothing that's just sit, sitting uh, maybe in a paper file somewhere since he, since he doesn't like computers so much, but somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, um, it almost seems like it would be a shame if, you know, and I mean, we wish him, we wish him a good, you know, good health and a long life, obviously, but you know, if when he passes away, there isn't the fa- the founding of like the Bigelow Library of Parapsychology. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that; those documents should go someplace. We would hope, but honestly, that is what's happened though in this field consistently: is people have documents like this, and then when they die, those documents simply get thrown away. Um, you know, it 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 happened to a lot of the original paperwork and information surrounding MUFON. A lot of those original case files just kind of blew to the wind, um, which has been a, been a real shame, I think. Cause again, you know, sometimes bad results tell you more than good results do. You know, you can, you can pinpoint away from things, testing that won't work ideas that aren't true. Um, you can still get information there. So one, one aspect of this story that we're looking into for this series that I think hasn't really been, well, it's been talked about, but not really taken very seriously is the idea that perhaps To The Stars Academy is some kind of disinformation group. And I don't know how much I believe that. You know what I mean? I think Tom DeLonge is super genuine in his belief, frankly, almost to the point of like embarrassing other members of (laughs) To The Stars Academy. You know, he really believes this stuff and he really thinks it. Um, But I do think it's fascinating the connection between, say, some of these people and, say – you know, the disinformation groups that we we suspect, at least, or we have evidence that they existed during, say, the period of like the 1980s to the 1990s, you know, with, uh, say, Paul Benowitz or, you know, other like to me, the connection between Paul Benowitz and Bigelow is fascinating. It's not it's not an actual connection. I mean, some people, you know, in common, right, Linda Moulton Howe and whatever, but. The idea that there were these two kind of eccentric millionaires at the time, 
looking into UFOs and other paranormal things. And one of them cracked under kind of the pressure, supposedly. I mean, not supposedly. He he did end up in an asylum. But that one of them seemed to have cracked under this and the other one seemed to have been almost refined by it. You know what I mean? That to me is a very fascinating part of this story. Um, what do you make of those connections? What do you what do you think about that kind of Yeah, narrative? I mean, I think it's another example of a potential cycle in the interaction between the government and ufology. And I guess I wouldn't I wouldn't fall over with surprise if I found out that something similar was happening again into the stars was a disinformation campaign. I don't I don't have enough evidence to believe that myself at the moment. But I, mm. I think what makes more sense to me, although I also don't have enough evidence to say I believe this either, is that like it's it's somehow in in the government's interest to just kind of let this ride, um, to let people continue to be confused and believe what they want so that they don't pay attention maybe either to, to advanced technology that we have or advanced technology from another country that um, is somehow a threat to us. And like, what what is interesting to me is how, um, you know, the, the Pentagon isn't going after Lou Elizondo for releasing his video, these videos that it looks like he wasn't supposed to release. And they're not like issuing very many correctional statements, you know, they could, they could clear all of this confusion up with one single press release and they're not doing it. And so I think like in the past where, um, top secret projects have have kind of remained top secret in part by letting people think like what they see as a UFO so that serious people don't take them seriously. It makes sense to me that that could be happening again. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I think the point you make about the government not clearing up any of the statements of Lou Elizondo or even, you know, even say, I mean, one of the, I think the most egregious displays of this is the Italian, I mean, the Italian government, which, you know, my and I say this with all due love to Italy because my family is Italian. My mom is from Italy. The Italian government is not necessarily the most put together at the moment. <laughs> um, you know, so all due respect to that. But, you know, to me, it, it is an egregious display of of inaccuracy to call the Italian version of MUFON the <laughs> Italian military on unidentified you know like that's just not the case just because some guys were in the italian military and you know one of them it appears was given an honorary title doesn't mean that they're the italian military taking this seriously but whatever um it is interesting that they don't clear it up and i i think i think that there is a case to be made that there's something there to say again the we're we're a lot of people here are arguing about UFOs, people that maybe in other cases would be worried about technologies that might not be good for our society that we are developing, right? Facial recognition technologies and artificial intelligence and you know, whatever, any number of these things. They're not worried about those things, they're not worried about real um concerns with technology. They're worried about, you know, Lou Elizondo. Yeah, going on a <laughs> right. podcast. I mean, from a, from a, from a psychological it's, it's a perspective, great, it's yeah. easier to like deflect your emotions about real things, maybe onto onto maybe not real things, and to just maybe take like this general feeling of threat. Like honestly, it feels like the world could end basically any day. Uh, to yeah, me, no, and, I agree, hundred like, percent. Yes, you just take that feeling and displace it onto something else, and then you just worry about UFOs instead of worrying about nuclear war with North Korea. Right, right, yeah, yeah, and it's uh, and maybe the UFOs will save us from the nuclear war, right? Maybe they're friendly. Yeah. Yay, I, that'll I would be great. That. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, oh, me too. It'd be awesome. One, um, one other part of this that I think is not getting a lot of play, but I think is honestly the most fascinating part of the story, is just how easy it seems to have been for Robert Bigelow to like buy a government program. You know, like he he talked to Harry Reid and he's like, hey, I'm going to give you I'm going to keep giving you money, but I think we should look at UFOs. And Harry Reid's like, you know, that's a very convincing argument. You make giant pile of money. We're going to do that. (laughs) We're going to found a tip and we're going to, you know, to me, a big part of this story is about government corruption. And the power that money has on 
I guess, the scientific process generally. And we see this with other stories, too, with, uh, you know, the revelations that there were, you know, really, really high level scientists going and talking to Jeffrey Epstein about creating like an Epstein clone island army. You know what I mean? Like, that is crazy to me that the influence that money can have in this kind of way um what do you think that's an important part of this story or do you think that this is just do you suspect that ATIP was going to come out before Bigelow helped or Bigelow kind of pushed for it to be funded do you think that's part of their overall mythology of to the stars academy or do you think there's really something to that um i mean i think it it i i don't know for sure i should say first but i mean no i think that i think that's a big part sure. of the story that money and connections get things done. Like, I don't think it's a coincidence that Robert Bigelow was a donor to Harry Reid and that he is a very influential person in the state of Nevada. And the way, the way, the, the way the narrative about how the program got funded makes me think that there's, you know, there's probably a lot of programs in the government that kind of work this way. Like I want to, I'm interested in doing this thing. Okay. Let's do this thing. Here's some millions of dollars that are a lot to regular people, but are not necessarily a lot to the defense budget. And then because they do kind of like fly under the radar, then there's not a whole lot of oversight around what they're doing. And that seems to be the case with ATIP that maybe the officials at the actual Pentagon weren't really aware of, of what Robert Bigelow was doing out in the desert in a full kind of way. And I mean, to your point about Epstein, I th- yeah, I think there are these circles of connection and influence and, and prestige where you can get away with a whole lot if you're a person with money and you're a scientist who wants money because there's a lot of defense money, but there's not actually a ton of science money and scientists are always fighting over it. So when one of these rich guys like turns their eye towards you and says, do you want some? That's, that's very attractive, even if they're not a great person. Yeah, it's. I likened it on this show actually to like going to one of those um, timeshare meetings to get a, you know, a set of golf clubs. You just kind of, you know, you go, you hear the spiel, and you kind of think, you know, in your head, you're like, "This is so dumb. I'm never going to do this." And then you leave. You know, if if you gotta, if you have to sit through an hour of some dumb billionaire being like, you know. And then we're going to strap rockets to the boots and then the bears will fly to the moon and we'll have bear colonies. You know, if you have to sit through that to get, uh, you know, $2 million in funding for your, your project that is free of any kind of, you know, I, I, I hesitate to say oversight, but, you know, it's not linked to any kind of um, – it's like scientific fund money, right? It's, it's just money you can spend on stuff you want to look into but would never get the funding to do otherwise – that is very appealing. I, uh, I I wonder, part of me wonders if there aren't more programs like ETIP out there. And not even say in terms of like UFOs, but just in terms of like pet projects that the, that the business world think would be great or individual, you know, individual donors think would be really useful. I mean, I, you know, I, I wonder if there's not some like secret, I don't know, uh, program studying I don't know, genetically modified corn or something in like the USDA and it's some eccentric, you know, corn millionaire funding it. Um, It seems like it's crazy that to think that Bigelow would be the only one that was able to buy this kind of access. Uh, I have to think that there are other programs like this out there that we would be, I don't know, as a society kind of flabbergasted that we were spending, you know, tens of billions of dollars a year on it. But uh, yeah, for know. sure. I mean, I think I I think the fact that one came to light means there's probably a lot more. And I mean, you see it in, in lots of scientific studies and people are getting better about reporting on it. Just the the conflicts of interest that come with that, like, is industry funding that GMO corn study at the USDA or is like Coca-Cola funding sugar studies and stuff like that. And I think people are getting mm-hmm. better as the world becomes more transparent at figuring that stuff out, but there's surely much more of it than we know about. Yeah, no, for sure. So any, well, with the last kind of 10 minutes here, I, I guess I wanted to get your take. What, if, if you had to say, what do you think the top five biggest, you give me a rundown, right? What do you, what are you the most concerned about for, I guess, public understanding of science in the next couple of years. What do you think are the biggest issues or the biggest things you'd like to see corrected 
in the public's mind about science or about, you know, I'm talking like, you know, anti-vaccinations or whatever, right? What do you think those would be? Wow, that's a big question. Um, I know. <laughs> we, we keep, you know, we keep ending these with like hard. I think every single one of these interviews has ended with people being like, oh, my God, that's a that's a question. Why didn't you give me this earlier? <laughs> So that's my bad. Maybe that's me not being a great interviewer. But anyways. Hold on. Um, well, so I, I am going to start with a, a UFO one and then I'll go on to different ones. But I think, you know, I think that if if there are alien spaceships visiting the world, which is a thing I don't myself believe, but is a thing that has been implied repeatedly in the media and by places like to the stars, like I have a lot of. I have a lot of questions about that and I would like to get it cleared up. So, I mean, I think as a person who spent the past year and a half of her life working on stuff like that, I would, I would ask questions about that. Um, I think anti-vaccination is a big one because I personally don't want to die in an epidemic. Um, I do have, I do have vaccines, (laughs) Um, uh, you know, climate change is gonna it is already changing and it's gonna change life for everybody so questions about like how do you actually get industry and countries to cooperate on moving forward with that and then like how do we adjust to the like changing reality that will exist even if we do better let's see that's three you said five it's such a big question it doesn't have to be five <laughs> i think those were some good those were a good three i think those were really nice three there but uh, if you have others, I mean, you know, you just pipe in, just come up okay. with them. It's all good. No, we'll stick with three. Those are, those are big ones that I think lots of people would agree with me, except for maybe about UFOs. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree. I agree with all three. I think it's interesting. I um, yeah. I guess another kind of question that I had for you really was, have you have you had the experience yet of um, have you talked to like an experiencer yet? Like someone who thinks they were abducted, actually? No, uh, I have not. I thought about doing it for the research I was doing for working on the book. And then in the end, I decided that I only wanted to write about people who I could like talk about their experience in a respectful way. And I wasn't yes. confident that I could do that with an experiencer. So I ended up leaving it out. Yeah, no, I think actually that that's one of the most important um I commend you very much for 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 even considering that in the first place, because honestly, it's something that people don't. Um, I don't know. People don't consider that these are these are real people who are. You know, it was easy coming into this field, thinking that well, it's never happened to me, so there's no way it's happened to anybody. And then you go to an event and you talk to somebody who's like you know, literally shaking and and crying and upset and telling this story that really negatively affected them. And you kind of walk away where you're like, I don't know what happened to that person, but something terrible happened. Yeah. You know, and I don't, you know, you don't know what it is, but I think really um, it's something that needs to be something that needs to be uh, addressed more because there are people that are really getting hurt by something you know, and I don't know what it is, but they're they're first off being victimized by whatever experience traumatizes them, but then they are subsequently being victimized by being um, by being lied to, by being sold remedies that will not work, and in in some cases by literally being victimized further by having dangerous psychological tests and, and methods done on right. them in someone's basement. Yeah, I you mean, know? I think there's um, there's a lot of hucksters and hoaxers out there but i don't think they're the individual people who have experiences i think they're the people making money off of the people who have experiences and so yeah i'm fine taking those yes. people to task the people with the with the solutions and the books and the videos but i yeah i don't i don't think it's good to fur- to further victimize like you said people who who truly believe what they're saying whether it's true or not yeah absolutely no it's and it's a, it's a fine line it can be hard but it's I don't know. We get, you just got to be kind. Just don't be jerks, people. Be nice. Come on. Yeah. Especially on the internet. It's funny, actually. I, a point, point of advice, and I mean, I'm sure you don't really even need this, but the only two groups that we have ever gotten, like, legitimate, um, like, harassment from are 
to the Stars Academy supporters and people who think that they have super oh, mega Lyme disease. <laughs> those are the what's what's the Venn diagram of that of those two groups? It's surprisingly small, actually. Um, it's it's actually has been really funny. Like you would expect it to be bigger because you'd think, well, maybe Lyme disease is like a government program used to control the aliens. You know, you can come up with all kinds of mythologies, right? Somehow that cross pollination has never happened. Um, but in either case, from those groups, I have learned that I am a stupid science shill. Um, you know, who's really doing harm to the truth. So it's, it's yeah. been nice. Well, I'm a, I'm a government disinformation agent, so. Oh, congrats. Man, yeah, when do we get then. our checks this month? I don't, I don't understand. I haven't been paid yet. I don't know. Yeah. I should definitely have better health insurance if that's true. Uh, right. So. Ridiculous. All right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to the mad scientist podcast. I've been your host, Chris Cogswell here again. Um, with our guest, Sarah Scholes. Sarah, thanks so much for coming on. Anything you want to leave the listeners with? Anything you'd like them to go check out? Uh, sure. Uh, my Twitter handle is Scholes Sarah, S-C-O-L-E-S, Sarah. Um, and the book I wrote about the UFO community called They Are Already Here, uh, UFO Culture and Why We See Saucers, is you can pre-order it on uh, Amazon or Barnes & Noble when it comes out in March. Bestseller science list. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for listening, dear listeners. We'll be back in a week with our next episode. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at madscientistpod or at teamgiantsquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. (laughs) Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.